Well, we welcome our audience once again, our faithful audience to the Watches of the Skies program. We're here at Ashland University. We are perfectly situated between Cleveland and Columbus, and we're in the studios of the Journalism and Digital Media program. I'm joined by my colleague, as always, Dennis Monacrusos. Hello, Dennis. Hello, how are you? Great. Hey, we have a very special guest with us we today, do. Senator Rob Portman. Senator Portman, we're so grateful that you're here. We've had a great relationship over the years, and we're just honored to have you join us today. Well, it's a delight to be with you. Thanks for including me on Watchers of the Sky. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on our program, we kind of look out at contemporary issues and we look at the intersection between higher ed, Ashland University, and those issues. You know, we know you pretty well, but our audience may not know you're very interested in higher ed topics. You're interested in leadership, one of those topics. You're going to be speaking on our campus later to our Ashbrook students and others. So let's dig into some of those topics, some of the things that I know that have been important to you in your career. One that we've talked about in particular that you've been really at the forefront, forefront on is this idea of the Pell Grant which has been a tremendous boon for students, but it hasn't been able to be applied to micro-credentials or smaller units. And you kind of took the lead on this and said, we should be applying the Pell Grant more broadly so that students in a variety of contexts can use those dollars to help them succeed. Maybe give mm -hmm. our listeners a sense of what that's all about, Rob, why you're supporting it, and, and how we might be able to continue to advocate for that. Well, sure. Well, first, thanks for your leadership here. You've been an awesome academic leader, and now I know you're a media star as well. Oh, sure. <laughs> with your podcast. Uh, look, our, our country needs more people who have skills training to be able to fill jobs, and that's particularly true now where we have a lot of job openings. Uh, think of the person who knows how to weld or a machinist, mm -hmm. uh, but also in the, in the healthcare setting, a tech, uh, certainly in the technology setting, someone who knows how to code. These are jobs that don't require a college degree, frankly, right. uh, but they do require advanced training and education after high school. About half of all America's jobs fall in that category. The economists call them middle skills jobs. I don't really like that word because they're highly skilled jobs, mm -hmm. uh, but they don't require a college degree, but they do require some training. The way we've set up our system in this country, we have a wonderful Pell Grant program that helps people who come from low-income families to be able to go to great schools like Ashland and to get a four-year degree or two-year degree. However, they cannot apply that same Pell Grant to these shorter-term training programs to become a welder, as mm -hmm. an example, or a tech or a coder. Mm -hmm. And so we're simply saying, let's expand the Pell Grant program, which has worked so well, not take it away from the university, the higher, higher ed setting, but be able to apply it for some of these programs. And by the way, Ashland would be involved in some of these programs, Ed would, as would community colleges. Sure. Uh, I'm a big fan of career and technical education in high school, uh, but for the kind of jobs that are out there that where we really need trained workers, we need to take it to the next level. And that's where these Pell Grants would be very helpful. Well, I know that we have been chosen at Ashland as being a 5G training site. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect example. We, we do have some funding that helps students who are interested in that. But were it not for that funding, that's a perfect example of where we would need this additional help. Well, we're grateful to see it moving forward a little bit. I know that Dennis was doing some reading on this in particular and saw some of the arguments that the other side have posed. Maybe, Dennis, you can flesh some of that out for the Senator, and we can have some give and take on that as well. Well, one thing that I was curious about, uh, in a previous podcast, we discussed that one of the difficulties with raising the cost of college is government loans and grants and things of that sort because there's an, there's an, an incentive for institutions to, to grab this money, it's great for them. Not at Ashland. Yeah, not at Ashland, not at of course. Okay. You know. right. Yeah, obviously we're speaking about unnamed schools <laughs> in some far off place. 
But um, I, I don't remember if it was Reagan's joke that there's nothing so temporary or nothing so permanent as a temporary government program yeah. as well. So one concern might be that this will raise college tuition rates, so there will be this kind of vicious circle where rates will go up, uh, it's great for the school, and, and it will benefit employers and some students, but, but costs will go up. So one, one objection might be that, well, it would be better to have boot camps where the employer is paying the school to train the people rather than having a government grant. So that's one, one objection. Another objection is that it's not helping enough people. So it's helping, let's say, middle-class whites, but it's not doing as much for people who are minorities and for lower-income people. So a couple of um, yeah. things that I came across there. Yeah. Well, of course, it's, it's directed to lower-income families, so right. it would, it would uh, uh, an argument might be that it should be able to be applied to, say, um, you know, middle or upper middle class families. Uh, it does not. It applies to those who cannot afford it. And so it is, it is very much targeted toward those, those groups. Uh, to answer your second question. On the first one, it's interesting. I think it'll have just the opposite effect. And okay. one reason some people in higher ed are not crazy about it is because they think it'll divert some students who otherwise would go through their programs. Uh, let me give you a couple interesting statistics. One is for people who take out a Pell Grant to go to a college or university, most of them don't end up getting a college degree. Hmm. To me, that's discouraging uh, for those students. Um, for our broader economic uh, needs we have, which is you want people to get that degree. And if you're in one of these shorter-term training programs and you are uh, receiving a Pell Grant, uh, the data is very compelling that you will finish. First of all, they're you know, 10 to 15 months program. You can see mm -hmm. the light at the end of the tunnel. Second is you have a job at the end of the tunnel unlike staying in college um, and getting a degree where you have no guarantee of work. So almost all these programs include, you know, an employer at the other end saying, we would welcome you. Think of coding, think of uh, truck driving, even, sure. you know, getting a, a, a CDL, a right. commercial truck, truck driver's license. You have a job. So, and good paying jobs. We're talking 50, 60, 70,000 bucks a year with benefits in a place like Ohio where we need these workers. So it actually, I think, is a much more efficient way to use the federal dollar and in fact, I think it will pull some people out of the college setting who perhaps, uh, you know, would be better positioned to go get a job with a good industry recognized certificate. The other argument to make an argument that you didn't make, but some have made is, well, that's not fair. These students really might want to go to college. Well, they can certainly go to college. Sure. In fact, I've heard plenty of examples uh, of people who end up getting these short term training programs, get the industry recognized certificate, get a job and their employers send them back. One young man who I met years ago now at uh, Great Oaks, which is a career and technical school down in the Cincinnati area, has now got a master's degree in engineering. And his employer paid for the whole thing. Right, it's great. Because once you're in there and you're, and you're showing what you can do, then your employer's often gonna be very interested in helping you to, to you know, advance your education. And because uh, they know it's gonna be in their interest ultimately. And this young man is now an engineer. I was at a current technical school in Southeast Ohio and uh, went to a welding class, which was great. And there were, I don't know, maybe 10 people in the class, uh, one woman, nine guys. And so, you know, I talked to all of them, but I really focused on this young woman and said, wow, you're in welding, that's great. How did you choose it? What do you want to do? She said, I'm, I want to go all the way. Like I want to be a underwater welder someday. Mm. So welding, you know, there's about 10 categories. Underwater welding is probably the top <laughs> right. category. Okay. You know, it's like 
really well paid, very dangerous, very difficult. She wanted to be an underwater welder. I said, oh, that's great. Are you going to go on and pursue this? She said, I can't afford it. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I'm eligible for a Pell Grant, um, so I'm going to go to college. And I'd really rather get <laughs> the, the welding degree, but I'm going to pursue uh, you know, another way here because these programs are expensive. You right. know, to get an advanced degree and uh, a certificate in welding, uh, particularly underwater welding, is expensive. And there was no means for her to pay for it. I found that fascinating. And this was right. early on when we were looking at this legislation, now called the JOBS Act, and realized, wow, I mean, she may be an extreme example. I'm sure she is. But there are students out there who would actually like to go into some of these professions where we have such a dire need. Uh, again, these half of America's jobs require this education after high school but don't require a college degree. They're the jobs that we need to fill so badly. Right. And I think one of the things this legislation points to, and you've emphasized, is that we have in this country still a pecking order around education, which, you know, places like Australia and others, other countries and nations who get this right, really focus on the fact that it's, it's, it's not either or. It can be both and, as you say. Mm -hmm. And it, sh it shouldn't be seen that the trades are lesser than you know, someone who gets a degree, a uh, four-year degree. And it, it's true. Just try to find someone who's great at woodworking or some other great craft today. It, it is certainly in demand. So yeah. appreciate your leadership there. Speaking of leadership, let's transition to leadership. I know I was among many Ohioans who breathed a sigh of despair when you decided not to run again. This is something you've heard from, from me a lot personally and others. But, you know, I think it's because you've displayed a style of leadership that is rare in our country with polarization being the word that's so often used. You know, Rob, you've not been that person. You've, you've taken some risk to reach across the aisle and say we can be better as a nation. And I talk to young students all the time who are considering leadership and, and they wanna hear from you because some of them are feeling discouraged today. You're not, you still see a bright hope and future for leadership in our country. Talk to our students a little bit about why you see it that way and, and how you might advise them in these days ahead. Well, first, I encourage students to be involved in public service, uh, either as elected officials, which is tougher these days, I'll acknowledge, uh, because the polarization uh, is real. Uh, but there are many ways to be involved in public service, and that includes working for government or working on the private sector side, working for uh, a group that uh, in, you know, has a mission that is public service oriented. But in terms of elected office and politics, uh, I think it's really important we have good people uh, who get involved and engaged. And I think it's really pretty simple that your job as a public servant is to represent your neighbors. In my case, my neighbors are pretty uh, widespread all over the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. I get to represent the whole state. And you're hired to do a job, and that job is to uh, get things done for them. And it's appropriate to have a different point of view with the other party or even people within your, your, your party and to express it clearly and you guys do that on this podcast. But ultimately, you have to be able to find that common ground to get something done. It's right. true in your family. It's true in your business. It's true in academia. Right. For sure. <laughs> uh, when you deal with a faculty, you sometimes probably think, oh my gosh, we can never solve this problem, and you figure it out. So I think that's the challenge we face as a country right now, is that there are certain incentives that are uh, in place for people to simply take one uh, position on one extreme or another, including, frankly, fundraising online. That's sure. one um, consequence of our 
social media reality, which is that you know you can go online and raise a lot of money if you're throwing out the red meat, and it's a little harder if you're focused on how to get things done in bipartisanship. So I think that it's a challenge, but it's a challenge worth undertaking because it ultimately uh, is about what our country will be going forward. You know, I think we have the greatest country on the face of the earth. I think we continue to be a beacon of hope and opportunity for the rest of the world. But uh, I think it's waning uh, as people look at us and say, my gosh, they can't, you know, get their act together to solve big problems anymore. Uh, recently, with regard to infrastructure, uh, we did this by building effort, uh, an effort from the middle out. We found some Democrats willing to support no new taxes uh, and some Republicans willing to support some more spending on infrastructure for roads and bridges and, and so on. And we found a, a, a coalition and then worked out uh, in sort of concentric circles from there in the end passed the legislation with a supermajority in the House and Senate and it was signed into law and now it's helping to restore our infrastructure which was falling behind other countries in the world and, and really in, in need of repair. It wasn't easy. It took us probably six months longer than I thought it should have. <laughs> uh, and we got uh, attacked from the right and attacked from the left. Uh, but in the end, we stuck together with this notion that we were going to do something good for the country. And I think that's an example that should inspire some students who are looking and thinking, gosh, can Congress accomplish big things? We had talked about infrastructure literally for 25 right. years, maybe longer. Uh, four or five administrations had promised we were going to address this issue. And, and yet it was very difficult given the polarization, but we figured it out. And so I think there is a way forward. I think there is an opportunity here for people who want to serve and serve on both sides of the aisle in a, what I think is an honorable way, meaning that you don't have to agree with your political opponent, uh, but you have to have enough respect for one another to figure out how to find that common ground. As the watchers of the skies looking at contemporary events, Ukraine is something that Dennis and I have talked about a bit. This is something you're living out and you know, you're seeing within the Republican Party a little bit of splintering around how we should approach this. This obviously was not anticipated by some, by some others. Maybe give our listeners just a quick insight, Robin, to how you, how you see the future engagement with Ukraine and, and what uh, you think might result from that. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think our party is more unified now than perhaps we were good. even a couple months ago, and nothing has unified us more than Vladimir Putin and his barbaric and, um, you know, I think his actions are not just unjustified um, and illegal, but they are cowardly and barbaric. And that has, on our TV sets and online, uh, given us these images that um, I think motivate pretty much all of us to say, you know, this shall not stand. The question is, what do you do about it? And we have a, a legitimate concern about engaging directly with Russia, given that they are a nuclear power, given that we want to avoid starting a, a new massive war. On the other hand, I think there is an understanding that this conflict in Ukraine does affect us and our national security. It is clearly in our national security that Vladimir Putin lose and Ukraine wins. The alternative is that an authoritarian country can go into a neighbor who happens to be a democracy in this case, but really any country that is a sovereign independent country right. and invade that country, kill tens of thousands of its citizens. Uh, and we haven't seen this in the European continent, of course, since World War II. It's been almost 80 years and it has already resulted in well over 3 million refugees. Uh, I think it's likely to be far more than that before this is over. I mean, this is uh, something where we have to take a stand. 
my view is that the administration has done a good job in some areas and a bad job in others. And particularly when a president of the United States is overseas, I try to be measured in, in how I talk about uh, my views because, again, I think we need to be unified as much as possible. But I think we have to realize that the United States can and should do more in terms of providing military assistance to Ukraine. And I think we were late to the game on that. Um, we've started to do more, and that's good. So I'm always pushing on that, and we can get into specifics if you like, but there's things we can do to provide anti-aircraft weaponry, as an example, anti-ship weapons that we should be doing. On the sanctions front, there was good news this morning because President Biden announced that the Europeans were willing to reduce their dependency on Russian oil mm -hmm. and gas. This is very important, not for the obvious reason, which is otherwise Vladimir Putin uses that as a political weapon, but because those revenues are going to fund the war machine. It's their right. number one export, most of right. their revenues. So it's incredibly important that we get countries, not just so European countries, but around the world, to do what we did, which is to say, enough. We're not going to bring this stuff into our country. Instead, we're going to develop our own resources. This also gives us the opportunity to develop particular natural gas resources and send more liquefied natural gas to Europe. The president today essentially promised to double that which is something I'm very supportive of. The problem is we don't have the infrastructure to do that right now, both in terms of pipelines and terminals. And the reason we don't, in part, is because some elected officials, including President Biden, uh, have been for stifling the natural resources we have in the ground here in America. And they have put in place specific policy provisions that make it hard to do that, including permitting. So uh, I'm glad the president made the decision and said he's going to do it, but it will require now actually a change in policy to allow, as an example, these terminals to be sited, you know, by the FERC right away, uh, to allow pipelines to reach those terminals, uh, to allow us to uh, explore and to uh, extract resources from our public lands and waters that, mm -hmm. you know, the president issued an executive order stopping that recently. Uh, that's in litigation right now. So it will involve a different approach <laughs> Right. to policy to actually bring it to fruition. But that was a good sign because probably of all the sanctions, that's the most important one is to keep these revenues from going into the Russian economy that fuel, have fueled the rise of the Russian military and, and continues to fuel uh, the murderous activities they're taking part in in Ukraine. Well, Senator Portman, thank you for those insights. Thank you for joining us. It's amazing how quickly the 20-minute program goes. <laughs> but in our last few seconds together, Karen and I have been Midwesterners now for seven years. We love it here in Ashland. Give our listeners a quick gem in Ohio. You, ha you haven't been to Ohio. Here's a gem you may not have heard about. Give us a quick gem as we close out or watch us of this guy's program for today. Uh, Ohio is the heartland. I was with the CEO of Intel this week. Mm. And they've just made a commitment to put $20 billion into Ohio. Amazing. And the reason they chose Ohio for the largest economic development project in the country is because of the workforce. Uh, we talked about the skills gap earlier. Well, Ohio still has a relatively high trained workforce, highly trained workforce, particularly in these middle skills jobs we talked about, and a work ethic that, you know, is Midwestern, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, second, Ohio has it all. You know, we have the big cities. Um, we are number six or seven in the country in agriculture. It's mm -hmm. our largest industry. We have some beautiful farmland. And then we also have uh, beautiful landscapes, including the Appalachian Mountains. I, I saw some of the scenes you had at the beginning of your show there, and I thought, you know, we've got it all. Last night I flew into 
Cleveland, Ohio, and saw Lake Erie, you know, shining below me with a sunset. It was spectacular. And I thought, you know, a lot of people would be surprised that, to see that this is Ohio, but we right. have a lot of natural beauty as well. And it's a great place, great people, and we're, you know, we're very fortunate to, to be at the heart of it all. Agreed. Senator Portman, thank you again for joining us today. We're honored that you're here on campus again. Thank you for your leadership, and thank you to our audience for joining us again on the Watchers of the Skies program here at Ashland University. We look forward to having you join us next time as we continue to be the Watchers of the Skies. Thanks, Dr. Campo. Thank you.